often people feel that there isn't a place for them or that no one will listen, no one will understand. Today I'm chatting with Stephen Harfield. He's dedicated his career so far to improving Indigenous health in Australia and is currently a research leader in the field at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute. Gone are the days now of, of Aboriginal people being known as just great footballers. I think the time is now that we're seeing Aboriginal people becoming lawyers, police officers, doctors, nurses, you know, architects, engineers, those other things that aren't traditionally known you know, of Aboriginal people being and doing. He paints a picture of the challenges facing Indigenous communities. There is also a more blatant level of racism now than there probably was before. And gives some great insight into the link between racism and health and what needs to change to close the gap. It's a major shame not only for, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but I think for, for all Australians that the rate is so high. He shares his personal journey from having to grow up too fast as a teenager. It's just un- unheard of for someone that age to be passing away so young from lung cancer. To becoming the role model he is today. We are, you know, the world's longest living survival of a population in the world's history. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast about young men's health sponsored by the Freemasons Foundation Centre for Men's Health. My name's Callum, I'm a journalist, and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. Thanks, uh, Stephen, for coming in and, and giving us your time today. Just to start off with, just give us uh, some of your background. Where's your research at and, and where did you start off? Yeah, so I'm a uh, researcher and also master's student at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute. But my background is I'm actually an, an Aboriginal man of... Uh, my ancestral heritage is Narunga and Nalanjeri, which is two of the uh, Aboriginal tribes that are close to um, Adelaide. So that's where I'm from. But I grew up as an as an Adelaide boy down north. Whereabouts in the north? Elizabeth. Okay. And so uh, your heritage, that's from across the York Peninsula? York Peninsula, but also Nalanjeri is from the Coorong Murray Mouth area so, as well. So Okay. And so have you spent some time in that area? Yeah, yeah. So I obviously grew up mainly here in Adelaide, but spent some time over my childhood, um, particularly on the York, York Peninsula, um, with family camping and growing up down there. So so my dad passed away when I was 16 um, from lung cancer. He was 41 at the time. That was back in the year 2000. And I think for me in particular, that period in my life changed a lot in terms of who I was as a person back then to who I to who I am now, I think, particularly going through that stage and early at that time meant that I grew up quite a lot over a quick period of time. And I think that was, that wasn't anyone's fault. It's just what happened and what needed to happen at the time. But it doesn't prepare you for what might happen in life next. And I think that's always, you know, from those experiences, we we learn things about ourselves, but again, we don't learn enough to prepare us for the other stages of our lives. How did growing up quickly like that, what did that look like or what was your experience of that? I suppose you don't know at the time in the sense that a lot does happen over a short period of time. You know, you go from having your father there to not having him at all and then it's probably not until you have time to kind of grapple with that that you kind of realise, you know, shit, a lot has happened in that year or the couple of years since Dad has passed. And so I think, again, as a... You know, a, a young person, I was 16 and just still at high school and it was just a lot to comprehend. And, it, you know, for me, it was an important period of my life. It was year 11, year 11 and 12. And so it was just a massive thing to grapple with. And for a lot of people, it's not something that they comprehend would ever happen to them at, at such a young age or have to deal with at that point in time in their life. What pressure did that put on you? Um, I suppose, as I said, you know, you kind of have to grow up. Did you feel like you had to look after your, your mum and your um, siblings? Yeah, so um, when my dad passed away, one of my dad's brothers, my uncle, kind of said to me, well, you're the man of the house now. And I think that put undue pressure on me in the sense of, you know, I'm now responsible for, for everyone in the house because I think that's probably what people assume in the sense that, you know, as a man, you kind of have those things. That's your role in the house. Even though it was just my mum and myself and my younger sister in the house at that time, it's still a lot of pressure in terms of putting on a 16-year-old to kind of grapple with that. And so on reflection, how did that how did that impact you at the time and, and in what way were you not ready for that and sort of how did that 
show itself later on? Um, I think you're never ready for, for that kind of life event to occur, particularly at that stage of your life. Um, I don't think there's anything you can do or to prepare yourself for that. And again, I'll talk about something else in a bit, but yeah, it's just why the overall experience of terms of my dad passing away. And I think most people would say that they'd give anything for that to kind of not to happen. I think the things that did come in are that there are a number of positive things that have come from that. Because my dad passed away from cancer, I was engaged in the organisation called Canteen, which you may know about. Yeah. Um, and so that just put me in touch with a lot of the younger people who who share a similar experience in terms of cancer, either living with cancer or having lost someone else with cancer. And from that experience, I've grew and developed as a as a young person, but also engaged and shared an important period of my life with other young people who are in the same boat. And those people are, you know, my lifelong lifelong friends now as a result of that. Do you hope that the work that you do is sort of a reflection of, of love for Indigenous people generally? Yeah, I think um, in Aboriginal health more broadly is the fact that, you know, I want to see my community thrive. And the only way I think I can do that is by being involved right from the outset in the sense of engaging in um, health and medical research. I think I have the opportunity here to, to be involved and to engage in the issue and contribute in a way that I feel is positive and will bring benefit to the community as a whole. And do you think that community has the tools to thrive already? Um, Yeah, I I definitely think so. I think Aboriginal communities and people are quite um, resilient in terms of being able to decide and make decisions for themselves based on what's needed best for them. And I think that comes down from a history of where there's been limited opportunity for people and we've just done best with the situation at hand. And I think we've always, regardless of the challenge of the challenge in front of us, I think we'll always be able to thrive. How did you start your career in the in the field you're in now? What sort of inspired you to to go into that line of work? Yeah, I suppose research isn't probably something that most people would say that that's the thing that they want to do after after uni. It's probably something you kind of fall into. So at uni, I studied a bachelor of health sciences, majored in public health, but then after that, I kind of worked for a bit. Uh, mainly in sta- state government in in Aboriginal health, uh, mainly in policy and uh, project management. And then probably after a number of years, got a bit bored. At the same time, was also studying again, did my master's in public health. And then uh, Samri kind of popped up, you know, six, seven years ago when so the opportunity to come across and work for those guys. So why did you angle yourself towards Indigenous health in the first place? Yeah, so probably being Aboriginal and Having an, always an interest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health is probably an important factor in, in that decision. I feel as an Aboriginal man, I'm better placed to help my own community rather than a non-Indigenous person. Why is that? I think there's a level of understanding that you as an Aboriginal person have that you share amongst other Aboriginal people and it's something that while um, non-Indigenous people can appreciate the understanding of, it's not something that they can truly understand in terms of the minute kind of cultural factors that uh, we share as individuals. And so is that a real challenge for non-Indigenous people trying to provide healthcare to Indigenous people? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, it's not the only challenge, I think, that's faced by Aboriginal people trying to access uh, mainstream services in particular, but it's also definitely a challenge, I think, for for non-Indigenous people working in that space is there are things that, as non-Indigenous people, they'll probably never understand or never appreciate the value or the impact that 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 factor might have in someone's life. Can you say what some of those things are? I think it's probably just how central culture is to to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in terms of every facet of of life. I think part of that also is that connection that we have with family and that strong connection in, in the sense of my immediate family is my immediate family, but I have an extended family which stretches far beyond that immediate family. So I look at it in this sense that I know a lot more of my extended family on my mother's side who's Aboriginal than I do on my father's side who's non-Aboriginal because it's just the way that we've been brought up. We're a close-knit community. We have those strong links to each other. So, And how do you think that impacts healthcare and the willingness of Indigenous people to want to access healthcare? Does that play into that? Yeah, I think where there's a preference, I think Aboriginal people will always pick what we call a service which is Aboriginal community controlled or 
for a service that is culturally appropriate because it considers those factors that are important to Ocean Shire Shetlander people. And that will always be, I think, where there's an option for people to choose between a mainstream service and an Aboriginal community controlled service, they'll always probably pick the Aboriginal service. And I think, although that's not necessarily always the case, I think in the majority of circumstances, that's definitely, definitely it is. And has it been a problem in the past where communities uh, have health care that isn't culturally appropriate? Yeah, yeah. I think it's probably an ongoing issue, but I think that's probably how the establishment of Aboriginal community control services started off in the first place was based on the need of Aboriginal people not being able to receive the care that they needed from mainstream services. So back in 1971, I think it was, Aboriginal Redfern Medical Service in Sydney was established based on the need of providing services by and for Aboriginal people. While at the time it was mainly delivered by non-Indigenous people, it was those who had an understanding and appreciation of the needs for, for Aboriginal Church Islander people. And so since then, currently there are now over 150 Aboriginal community controlled medical services around the country. So most of those services would have what they would call a board, which is um, has people from the local community on those boards who provide direction and guidance in terms of the services that they should be delivering to their local community. And what are the sort of services that these communities need the most? Or what are the areas of health uh, that Indigenous people struggle with the most? Ultimately, it's about access to services. So I think that's if we can achieve that in terms of people being able to access services in the first place, I think that's, you know, one major hurdle that we can kind of address straight up. And then I think it's just providing a comprehensive range of services at the same time. So rather than just going to a GP service and seeing a doctor, Aboriginal Community Controlled Services provides additional services that um, Aboriginal, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can access. So such as seeing an Aboriginal health practitioner who may assess your broader health needs, um, do an, asset, an initial ass- assessment before you go on to see a nurse or a, or a GP or a doctor, and then they provide additional services such as um, psychology, uh, social-emotional well-being, uh, physiotherapy, nutrition, diabetes care, all these additional services that you wouldn't necessarily receive just by going along to a mainstream GP service. Have you noticed that there's a, a general attitude among um, Indigenous men in engaging with their health? Um, is there a disparity between that and non-Indigenous people or what's been, what have you seen? Yeah, I think last year you had Kutsi Canudo on board and he, I think he spoke to Cam about some of the work that he'd done and had, had conducted in his PhD, which showed that Aboriginal and Torres Strait men are less likely to engage in services for a number of reasons, and most of those reasons are related to services not being culturally appropriate, services not being accessible when men need them, services not having male staff that they can see. So those are big factors which deter Aboriginal and Torres Strait men from even walking through the door, let alone considering their own health needs before others. And what about the the fact that the the suicide rate among Indigenous people is twice that of the non-Indigenous um, population? How does that factor into healthcare? Um, yeah, obviously it's a, an appalling statistic and not something that we should be proud of at all. I think it's a it's a major shame not only for for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but I think for for all Australians that the rate is so high. Yeah, I think it's just appalling that that people can't access services when they need them the most. Is it that not being able to access those services, do you think that that's playing a major role in those rates being so high? I think it's part of the issue, but I think there are some other factors that play a critical part in in that, and that's, you know, a number of historical factors in terms of inter- intergenerational trauma that people experience as a result of colonisation, um, but also drug and alcohol um exposure to um, family or domestic violence. It's probably a coping mechanism rather than a direct response of anything in particular. I think while the rates of suicide and alcohol and domestic violence abuse are higher in Aboriginal people, it's not too dissimilar to, to what it is in, in non-Indigenous people. What was your, your own experience of growing up as an Aboriginal man? Um, so I'm one of four children. I'm the what well, I, I consider myself the middle child because my older sister's 12, 13 years older than me. 
And then my brother's only a couple of years older than me. My younger sister's only a couple of years younger. So, um, yeah, so one of four, as I said, growing up in Elizabeth, surrounded by family. Probably wasn't until I was older that I really understood what it meant to be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, particularly with an Aboriginal mother, an Aboriginal father, a non-Aboriginal father who's quite fair. Um, when were you growing up? What uh, what decade were we in? Uh, we're talking the nineties. So it was probably not until you know I was much older and going out, particularly with my mother, in terms of shopping and seeing the racism that she would be exposed to as a result of being, you know, Aboriginal. You know, because we were always, I think we always knew that we were, and my mother was always encouraging and supporting of the fact that we we are Aboriginal people, and that you know the time that we spent on. You know, York Peninsula on country was was always a good thing, but I think there are elements and or times throughout my childhood where they weren't positive as a result of being Aboriginal, and that wasn't the fault of our own or my mother's. It was other people's perception of what Aboriginal on the people are or who they should be. And what sort of you know abuse or what was directed? What did you see directed at your mother and and to yourself as well? What did you experience in that regard? There were probably a mixture of things. I think mainly a couple of times it would be. Even though I was young at the time, I would always get directed in terms of you know, asking what I needed or can I help you or, and they'd just blatantly ignore my mother or we'd get served after someone else who'd come in after us and so those kinds of things. Because would, you looked whiter than her? Uh, yeah, because I looked whiter but also because I was with my mother and so she would get ignored over someone else who, who, who was white, so... And what was it like seeing the impact of that on her? Because you did she let that show that that hurt, or my mum would always speak up. She'd get annoyed and would openly speak up and say, you know, which is probably a good thing, I think, rather than being reserved and and allowing that to happen. She'd always speak up. And so, what about you going through school at that time? Did you? Uh, how was your school experience in, in that regard? As I well? think my overall school experience was quite positive. I never had an issue, which I think is quite rare. Because I think we we grew up in a community where there were other Aboriginal people living um, at school, where there were Aboriginal people who were engaged. Um, so, and I think my mother worked for the education department, although she wasn't a teacher, she was quite heavily involved, and so I think that kind of helped as well. And how would you say times have changed since then? Do you feel like there's progress being made, or things are any different than they were? I think probably overall there probably is some progress, but I think there is also a more blatant level of racism now than there probably was before. And I think people are a bit more outspoken about about things and we can see that right throughout community. And I think it's a shame that we have politicians who behave in a way that isn't conducive to supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so what are you referring to there, if you just elaborate on what you um, So I think probably a current example is Pauline Hanson wanting to climb Uluru. It's frowned upon in terms of climbing Uluru by the local Anangu people, mainly because they do feel that it is a, a site of significance for them. And so out of respect, it's encouraged that people don't climb. And so now with the decision that in October that Uluru, that, yeah, in October people won't be able to no longer climb Uluru, and then there's been an increase more recently of the number of people going to Uluru and wanting to climb the rock before it is closed, and one of those people being Pauline Hanson. So when you see you know, people who have a, uh, a big microphone in society who are going to take those kinds of actions, or well, how do you feel about seeing that? It's probably just disappointing, I think, that we've got people who have a platform and don't use it in a way that is constructive for all members of society. And what about yourself in achieving all that you have? Do you feel like you are a, a, a trailblazer or a, a leader in, in your own way? Or do you feel like perhaps, you know, there would have been prejudice of, of people thinking that you couldn't get to the level that you're at given your your heritage? Do you think that plays into that at all? It's not something I consider. And I wouldn't say, I wouldn't self-identify as a trailblazer or a leader, but there are probably others who would say that are probably it probably am. I think there are things that I feel comfortable in the fact that I'm in a position where I'm able to speak up and and provide comment on things that um, necessarily other people don't feel comfortable doing or aren't, or aren't in a position to. And I think that's one of the strengths in terms of 
where I am today and where I probably will be in the future in terms of using that opportunity to not only open doors but to knock down doors to allow other people to to come through rather than walking on my own and closing doors behind me. And uh, in the past, you know, 20 years, 10 years, are you seeing more and more people wanting to, you know, using your figure of speech, come through that door and, and state their own claim in society and do incredible things, not just for the broader community but for the Indigenous community? Are you seeing more and more examples of that? Yeah, I think that's definitely across the board. I think we're seeing an increased number, particularly in, you know, of Opish and Tosh Islander people across a broad range of areas and um, specialties and workforces. I think gone are the days now of, of Aboriginal people being known as just great footballers. I think the time is now that we're seeing Aboriginal people becoming lawyers, police officers, doctors, nurses, you know, architects, engineers, those other things that aren't traditionally known, you know, of Aboriginal people being and doing. How visible do you think that's becoming generally? Is that becoming more and more the norm? Yeah, I'd say it is. I think the fact that we now have things like social media where people connect, can connect more with each other, where we can see and learn a lot more about other people, definitely helps and facilitates that. Um, and it gives people the opportunity to voice and have a platform as well. Is Do you feel that there's a necessity or that it's important to yourself and other Indigenous people to feel like you're still different to non-Indigenous people? Yeah, I, I think I probably would never say we'd want to get to a point where we feel like we've assimilated. I think, you know, we are, you know, the world's longest living survival of a population in the world's history. I mean, there's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living in Australia for over 60,000 years. And the fact that we are the continuous oldest living surviving culture of people in the world today demonstrates the value in our uniqueness as who we are as people. And so for you personally in, in living your life, how does that how does that flow into the way you live and, and what you do and, and your sense of self and uh, where you get you know your energy and your passion from? So, so most of that is in terms of me as an individual, I think being proud and strong in who I am is a great starting point. But then using that opportunity that I have as an individual to also um, encourage but also provide um, support for other people, I think it's just as, as important. I think particularly, you know, with uh, my cousins, my nieces and nephews and trying to encourage them to, to achieve something with their own life and do something that is important and worthwhile to them is just as important. And when we see those rates of mental illness and suicide and things like that still being so much higher, what do we need to do to continue to close that gap, in your view? There are probably uh, a number of things that we can do in terms of addressing mental mental health and suicide in, in Aboriginal people. And I think most of that starts with addressing some of those factors that are associated with suicide and mental health, you know, addressing generational trauma, violence and alcohol use, and providing services for people that address mental health and, and suicide at an early stage that are culturally appropriate, that are evidence-based, that are involved community, are intensive even over a long period of time, um, I think will go a long way in terms of addressing mental health and suicide in, in the Aboriginal population. What are some of those strategies that you have worked on coming up with to help um, people engage with their their health more? The biggest thing we can do around engaging other people in health is just talking about health. Um, there is no stigma in terms of being being able to feel confident enough to share your story and the things that affect you, whether it be mental health or, or drug and alcohol or other disease-specific illnesses that affect an individual. I think we all experience some disease and illness over our life course. And I think it's just important as to, to share your experience, but also to learn from others' experience as well at the same time. And how's the, the medical workforce distributed across Australia? I think some of your work's looked into geographically where we send our healthcare professionals. How does that impact Indigenous health? So yeah, that was some stuff I did before I got into research. Yeah, it's important. I think... Uh, traditionally, um, most of the workforce likes to work in areas where they've grown up, where they've currently live, or where they've studied. And so, part of 
is it more intimidating the idea for some of having to go on or choosing to go and work in those communities yeah i think it is i think if you've you've never been there you don't know anyone from there it's always going to be hard for you to to choose that as as a place to work particularly for 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 non-indigenous people i think like what you said before about the fact that there's just some things that non-indigenous uh, people can't fully understand or, or relate to indigenous people on do you think that 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 impacts non-indigenous people in making those decisions as well because they feel like they're going to be an outsider no matter what i think that's a, a component of, of it but i think the the main things are people feeling isolated and alone and being away from family and friends um going to a community or a or a or a town where they don't know anyone, where they don't have any connection to that country or land, whether it be through having or knowing someone else that lives there. Um, but I think it's what's important, though, is that people are willing to actually to learn and engage through that experience of putting themselves out there. I mean, as Aboriginal people, we're quite open to people's willingness to learn and and to be able to support and help them in terms of feeling comfortable in a way that they can um, thrive thrive in that situation. Yes, yeah, so it's very much not the case that non-Indigenous people aren't welcome to help uh, Indigenous people with health services. It's just that, do you think there's a stigma in that regard? I'd definitely say that non-Indigenous people aren't discouraged at all in terms of being involved in, and their willingness to, to kind of engage in, in Aboriginal Trosha Islander health. I think what's important is that they come with an open mind, that they're there to learn. Often what we see is that non-Indigenous people to come to these situations where they often feel that they're the expert and they may be the expert on at being a doctor or a nurse, but when you come to a community or to a village or to a community where the majority of people that live there are Aboriginal people, then you need to realise that you're no longer an expert. Um, you're there to learn and you're there to learn from people who are the experts, which are the people who live there and work in those communities. And that this distribution of um, health services at the moment across Australia, what does that sort of look like in terms of what there is versus what's needed? I can't really say too much because I haven't worked in that space for, for a number of years, but I think there is always a greater need for, for people who have an interest in Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health to put their hand up and to, to get involved. And because we can't do this on our own. I mean, we didn't get to where we are on our own. I mean, there are a number of things that have happened throughout history that, that have led us to where we are today. And I think it's important that we were able to do this together. Young men, um, is there different problems in that area to compared with older men? Or where do young uh, Indigenous men stand out in terms of uh, some things that need to be focused on or, or what you've, you've found? Yeah, so we probably see younger uh, Aboriginal adolescents, there is probably a different uh, focus in terms of health. Like the main causes for disease and mortality in, in adolescents is quite different to older Aboriginal people. In older Aboriginal people, it's mainly focused around chronic diseases, so things such as heart disease, diabetes, kidney d disease, cancer. In younger people, it's more related to injury, mental health. So they're probably t the two main causes of disease and mortality in in young people, particularly young men. And we can see that through some of the work that I'm doing currently around hospitalisation of, of adolescents. We can see that, particularly for men or for male Aboriginal adolescents, mental health and injury are the main causes of hospitalisation in that age group, and that increases over time and increases with each age group. And what we've seen is that over a 10-year period from 2006 to 2015, that there hasn't been much that that's actually changed in terms of rates of hospitalisation for, for young Aboriginal people. And again, there is a great disparity between non-Aboriginal adolescents and Aboriginal adolescents. What is that disparity? Do you have any more details on that? Or Most of the, the reasons for why people are going to hospital or, or experiencing mortality, morbidity in that age group is are the same. It's just the prevalence of which that, that happens. So the rates of hospitalisation and disease and injury are often somewhere between two to three or even five times as high for, for Aboriginal adolescents. And for males, again, that's definitely the case between non-Aboriginal males and, and Aboriginal males. And why, why are so many young men feeling that way? 
So the main reasons for probably why that's happening is, I think, in the first instant, access to primary healthcare services. And again, that probably comes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier in terms of access and people feeling comfortable to be able to access those services. But part of it also is that adolescence is an important period in, in life for an individual. It's a period in which um, we make decisions about our life that will affect our life for the future and in the long haul. And that's just simple things in terms of our education, our employment, but also the behaviours that we pick up and learn during that important pay, uh, phase of life around drug and alcohol use, um, physical activity, nutrition, and also about how and who we identify as as individuals. Do you think young Indigenous men are, are just as receptive to uh, wanting to learn about health and, and those sorts of things, or is there a difficulty in getting them to engage as well? I think there's a difficulty to in- for engagement of, of young people more broadly, um, particularly, I think, for, for males. I think, again, because it is often seen as a peak period of a, of a person's life in terms of the phase that we might be invincible, where we can do things that we can't necessarily do when we were younger or we, we might not be able to do when we're older. And so well, I think we probably engage in risky, risky behaviour, which probably isn't, isn't conducive to lifelong health. But there's, I'm sure, a lot of non-Indigenous young men doing the same thing. So why is it any different for Indigenous men? Yeah, I think it just stands back to the things that we were speak, speaking about before in terms of intergenerational trauma, greater exposure to drug and alcohol, family violence. And so where where's this going, do you think, in terms of uh, the rates that we see and trying to limit that and the outlook for the future? What do you see happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, I think the stuff that we've done recently in terms of the research, we can see that over that 10-year period, particularly in terms of hospitalisation, not much has changed in terms of the rates of hospitalisation or why there may be a a slight increase or decrease over time, depending on what you're looking at in particular. Um, Overall, there isn't much change, which is great, but probably concerning because nothing has changed and what we should be seeing is a decrease over time. But what that highlights is the fact that not a lot has happened. There isn't a focus on adolescent health or engaging young people in their own health. Um, we need to to really consider adolescence as a period in which we invest in people's lives. And that means engaging people in, in health, in education, in employment, so people are in a position that sets them up for later life. And what does focusing on that look like? It probably needs to be needs to take a couple of different approaches in terms of how we address some of those issues. I think engaging people in the things that are, that are important to them, but also the things that we see that are critical in terms of, and we know are contributors to, to good health outcomes, such as education, employment, all the kind of social determinants of health things that we kind of know are positive con- contributors to health in the long run. Those are the things that we should be engaging uh, young people in. But I think more importantly, it's about engaging young people in those decisions as well because young people know what's best for them at the time more so than we do as as older people. Um, I think um, it's really important that we engage people in decision-making in terms of the things that affect their health, the other things that affect their life, yeah, because they're the best ones to know what that really is. And do you think... That the government needs to clearly make it a priority just in terms of dollar figures? Yeah, I think um, both the state government but also the federal government need to do that. We can see here that in South Australia we have a health strategy which doesn't focus on adolescent health, has no mention of adolescence whatsoever in that document, which is a bit of a shame considering a large proportion, I think it's around 20%, and it's just as high as almost 20 to 25% of young people in the population fall into that that age group. And so it's a shame that government don't see that as a priority and I don't think it's been raised previously before and I think that's part of the issue in the, in the sense of adolescents probably don't know what's best for them, but in fact they really do. And if we get that earlier in intervention right, how does that flow on into improving health outcomes by you know cutting it off earlier before it becomes a, a bigger problem? Yeah, so what we can do is we can minimise the risk of certain behaviours. So if we can provide early interventions, put in place health promotion in areas that we know have greater benefit to, to Russian and Tosh Islander people, but 
adolescence more broadly, we can definitely tackle some of those issues and turn them around and make them factors that won't have lifelong impacts in terms of people's health. So we can reduce, say, the number of people smoking. We know that smoking is a major cause of disease and illness for a number of things. So if we can reduce the rates of smoking in young people, then that will go a long way in terms of health and the same with alcohol and and drug use as well. For what we can see for for smoking, I think, just off the top of my head, I think for Aboriginal adolescents, the rates of smoking have decreased over time and I think the number is high for for people who've never smoked than for for Aboriginal adolescents than there is for non-Indigenous, which I think is great. But again, I think we've still got a long way in terms of reducing the overall rate of smoking, but also drug and alcohol use and obesity, even though obesity is quite, the proportion of obesity is quite higher in in Aboriginal adolescents than than it is non-Indigenous. How do we make sure that that doesn't just stay still and that it actually moves forward? Yeah, I think, again, it's just investing in, in adolescent health, but also in those factors, in those risk, risk behaviours and factors that we know that contribute to poor health outcomes in the future, such as alcohol, drug and, al- uh, drug and alcohol, mental health, um, nutrition, and just mental health as well, of course. Yeah, so it's just investing in those and, and ensuring that when young people need services, they have access to services and the services that young people feel comfortable to access as well. In mentioning uh, racism, you seem to say before that your only experience of racism was that it wasn't something that particularly affected you personally. Do you think it definitely still has a massive impact on Indigenous people generally? While I experienced little racism personally, I think you know I experienced some while I was younger, and I think probably now more so racism probably is more prevalent in the fact that there are things that I choose to engage in and there are things that I choose not to engage in and it's hard to, to not not engage in things when it directly involves your family. So my cousin is Adam Goods. So our mothers are sisters and so he's my cousin and so the, the stuff that he's been put through more recently in terms of the way that he finished his AFL career and then again more recently the two movies or documentaries that have been made around his experience over that that time period again just for some reason gives people the opportunity to to voice their concerns or or racist comments towards towards him and I think we may forget that while Adam is an individual he's also now a father he's a husband he's the son of a you know he's a son and a brother and also cousin and nephew and to a, a whole number of other people who while that racism isn't directed towards them it does in a way flow onto them it's you know because in a way we feel like we have to defend or engage in a conversation which we were never willing participants of and it's not just because it wasn't directed at us it's it's just the way that it happens in the sense that you know adam is a strong and and a beautiful aboriginal man who's achieved a lot over his life and you know anyone to achieve what he has should be proud but it's just unfortunate that that experience has been tarnished by a series of events that have, regardless of whether people think so or not, is a result of racism. How best to respond to those negative voices when they make those comments that the vast majority will absolutely condemn? How do we respond when we see those comments online or when they're voiced in the media What's the appropriate way to uh, move forward when we've got people with those voices? Yeah, I think the first thing is just to call it out. I think that's the most powerful thing that I think we can do is because often people who make those remarks don't realise or aren't intending to be racist or to make racist remarks, but it's not up to that person to decide if that remark or that comment is racist. It's up to the individual who that's directed towards to make that reference in terms of whether it is racist or not. And so I think the best thing that we can do is call it out and make people accountable for what they do. And that means that people need to change their behaviour because often what we've seen is that when people have been called out, they continue to make the same remarks or comments again that are racist. Do you think that's a very small minority though or do you think it's bigger than we give it credit for? I think it's bigger than what we give it credit for. I think often we see people make comments 
in public forums um, and often we don't get to see or hear about uh, racism that occurs in non-public forums and I think there are more broader structural racism issues that, that occur that, that probably needs to be dealt with. It's just difficult because it does take a toll on, on individuals in terms of calling that out or being the, the individual who's being attacked. Where do you think it stems from? Do you think there's still just a desire for some non-Indigenous people to keep Indigenous people down? Why might that be the case? Or do you think it is? Yeah, I think it probably stems from a place of insecurity from those individuals. Um, I think it's probably a way in which people reassert their own power and authority on someone else. And I think that's probably where it comes from, is they probably feel threatened by an Aboriginal person or a person of colour other than themselves to that that person is infringing upon or affecting their own privilege in a way that they don't feel is conducive to their to them. And is that attitude stopping us moving forward as a society? Um, I think in part it is. I think we can't wait for everyone to catch up and to be on board. I think we've just got to push ahead because I think we'll always have individuals who probably don't share the same values and beliefs as, as the majority. Yeah, I think we just need to make sure that we continue to speak up and raise our issues and concerns in the hope that other people will jump on board. But also, you know, people see the importance of an inclusive society. What do you feel when you see comments like that made, you know, directed at Adam or directed at, at other people who are Indigenous? How does that feel to you or what impact does that have on, on yourself and, and other Indigenous people, do you think? Yeah, I think it's just a shame that, that people are in a position that they haven't put themselves in but someone else has put them in and now they have to deal with this level of bullshit which they shouldn't have to deal with. And again, I think it just comes from people just being stupid, making offensive comments about things that they probably have no, no credibility or, or authority to speak on. Do you think racism directly correlates to those things we spoke about in terms of rates of health and, and the gap in that regard? Is racism a major factor? Yeah, I think racism definitely is in terms of the general level of discrimination that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people face. I think that's definitely one factor. There has been some research previously done by others around racism and the impact that it has on health. And we can see that that experience isn't positive and it can cause people quite a level of um, stress um, and, and anxiety and can often result in you know, poor health on a number of factors. And it can just mean that people aren't accessing services but also don't feel comfortable or, or feel that they're receiving the appropriate care that they need because of who they are. They feel is it that they feel devalued? Probably not devalued. Probably not valued in the first place. And does that lead to isolation as well, or thinking that you know someone's projecting that attitude onto you? You therefore want to be separate. You therefore disengage or, or push away some of those things that should be able to help you. Yeah, I think um, someone has a, an experience where they've um, faced racism, such as you know if you go to a a hospital or a mainstream service or a GP practice and you've experienced racism either from a fellow patient, client or someone from, you know, staff or the doctor or the nurse or whatever, why would you put yourself in this that situation again by going back to that service? You'd either find another service or not engage at all. Well, when they have that, when they experience racism, when they're, I suppose, they're vulnerable in going to try and get help when they need it, and access a service that they're not necessarily comfortable with and then they're faced with some form of racism in doing that, then they're just they're not gonna go back next time because that's gonna be their, their instant feeling that they're not accepted. That's what you mean. Yeah, that's pretty much what happens is that people won't engage further in a service if they feel that they're gonna be in a situation or not feel comfortable enough to be who they are as an individual. If this is the kind of stuff that they they encounter every time they do go to a health service. So what do health services need to be particularly wary of? Um, so I think generally health services, you just need to be open and willing to, 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 the client, to the people that come along to their service. People engage in health services for a number of reasons and I think the main thing that they can do is just not stereotype into boxes or categories based on what they believe or know of someone they've encountered before. We've got to get 
rid of the stigma that is associated with mental health. I think I think we all need to feel like we're comfortable to be able to speak up and reach out and seek the help that we need in terms of looking after our own mental health. It's important that people are comfortable, that they feel that there is someone who's there to listen, who can support them and um, provide some assistance in terms of either just being there to listen or being able to help them seek further advice and support. What do you think that's like uh, within Indigenous communities where um, people feel you know, more connected to their entire community? Do you think that results in them seeking help or being able to speak to each other within that community or is there a the same level of stigma or shame associated with those thoughts and feelings? I'm probably not too sure, but I'd probably guess that they'd probably find it a lot harder because um, often in... Aboriginal communities are quite close and generally, you know, mental health is obviously more prevalent in um, in more rural and remote areas. And so for Aboriginal communities in those places, generally people know everyone in that community. Um, but I'm, I'm, what I'm asking is, that, is that a helpful thing or an unhelpful thing in that regard? Um, it's probably a, maybe an unhelpful thing. I think there are, there's a willingness there for people when they are reaching out to to, to support them, but I think often people feel that there isn't a place for them or that no one will listen, no one will understand you know, what, what I'm going through. How will I know? How will they know and feel? How will they know and appreciate how I feel? Um, and often there's a sense of hopelessness. There is a social construct in the terms of how we view and see men and these are behaviours and men shouldn't talk about their feelings and... And men should be manly and strong. That's across the board, though. That you don't yeah. think that's any any different in no, indigenous communities. I wouldn't say so. Any different? Not that I'm aware of. Do you think the fact that it, it's it is more prevalent, suicides more prevalent, uh, and a lot of these problems are more prevalent that that only makes it worse. That only makes because these people are seeing it around themselves so often. It puts the the thought in their head or um, plants the seed that that's just. The reality and that's what happens to a lot of people and you know if it's happening to me then it's supposed to happen to me do you think that plays into it um i think there's probably a sense of general hopelessness hopelessness after that experience of being and seeing and being in an environment that isn't conducive to positive mental health often again i think we see or individuals see themselves in isolation um, yeah, there was no one there for that person, so why would there be anyone there for me? Um, but I think there are multiple factors that feed into to why a person may take their own life. So these health services that can really be there for these communities in a way that they're going to want to uh, open up and, and go and engage, that's really sounds like that's vital, like that's the only way that is going to save lives in, in those sorts of communities is to have those services there where people feel comfortable going and, and sharing those things when they feel like they can't do it, you know, with their own families. Yeah, I think that's critical in the sense that services need to be available, but services also need to be appropriate and driven and developed by and for for which they are situated in. It's just as important that those services focus on positive mental health, um, prevention and early intervention, and that is, and that it's tackling the multiple of issues that a person or an individual is facing at the time in terms of being able to deal with their mental health at the time. Um, so it might just be drug and alcohol related. It might be a family issue. It might be that they're disengaged from education or employment. You know, it could all just be building up on that individual. And I think those services need to be multidimensional, Perry. Yeah, look at the whole picture. Yeah, the whole picture, and then. And focus not on only on only on the individual, but also the family and the community more broadly in terms of what is it that that individual community and family need at that time, and what do they need in terms of services and support into the future, so it, we can minimise the risk or prevent um, it from happening further in the future. And it seems like if we can improve that sense of connectedness. Um, you know, to our own communities and to health services and I suppose to a hopeful future, then that's what brings those rates down. Yeah, definitely. And I guess if we can make it 
the norm for people to go and seek help and talk about their feelings and what they're experiencing. And I guess, you know, we don't have to make it cool. I don't know if you can make it necessarily a, a cool thing to do, but certainly accepted and uh, that there's no sort of judgment there, then we will see change when we get to that point when someone's not being you know, laughed at or judged in any way for going and saying, hey, I'm feeling like this. And then also having someone to go and say that to who can give them the right advice and steer them in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. I think we've got to move away from mental health being or having a stigma or shame about it. I think we've got to feel comfortable in the fact that we all probably experience um, probably issues around mental illness or 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 general well-being that that we could all be empowered to feel like we're comfortable to be able to to speak up and to have conversations about about those things. Well, thanks so much for coming on. You certainly seem like a, a leader in your your field to me and someone who's very passionate about doing what they can but also trying to help out uh, the Indigenous community and just the, the field of health more more broadly and certainly seem like an extremely knowledgeable uh, young man with a lot, of, uh, a lot ahead of you. So thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing it. I think a lot of people will be really interested to hear what you say and um, let that sort of flow on into their own lives. So... Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you got something out of this episode, please leave a comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow the show so we can keep bringing you the content that matters. Also, guys, it's really important that we're part of the conversation about our health and well-being, and it's easy to do. Just Google Freemasons Foundation Center for Men's Health and click on the Men's Health Register to sign up and help out with much-needed surveys and studies that make us all better off. If you want to stay up to date with what we're doing and get involved, get onto the Young Blood Podcast community Facebook group and follow Young Blood Podcast on Instagram. And if you're keen to get in touch with me, email youngbloodpodcast or one word at hotmail.com. This is Young Blood. Thanks for joining us. Catch you next time.